You are now listening to the Griot's Black Podcast Network, Black Culture Amplified. Hi, and welcome to The Blackest Questions. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Greer, politics editor for The Griot and associate professor of political science at Fordham University. In this podcast, we ask our guests five of The Blackest Questions so we can learn a little bit more about them and have some fun while we're doing it. We're also going to learn a lot about Black history, past and present. So here's how this works. We have five rounds of questions about us. Black history, the entire diaspora, current events, you name it. And with each round, the questions get a little tougher, and the guest has 10 seconds to get it right. If they answer the question correctly, they'll receive one symbolic black fist, and they'll hear this. And if they get it wrong, they'll hear this. But we still love them anyway. After the five questions, there'll be a black bonus round at the end just for fun. I like to call it Black Lightning. So... Our guest for today's episode is Tremaine Lee, Pulitzer Prize and Emmy Award-winning journalist. Tremaine Lee is a correspondent for MSNBC and host of the podcast Into America. He covers social justice issues and the role of race, violence, politics, and law enforcement in America. In 2020, Lee launched The Race Report, a special MSNBC series that explored the intersection between race and politics in the election season. He also debuted Into America, the new podcast, elevating the voices of voters and demonstrating how policy impacts the day-to-day lives of Americans. Lee was also among the contributors to the New York Times Magazine's 1619 Project, which earned a 2020 George Polk Award for its exploration of the role of slavery in America and its enduring effects in contemporary American society. Hello, Tremaine. Thank you so much for joining The Blackest Questions. Dr. Greer, thank you for having me. This is, is, I'm a little nervous. Heard the, the run up. Don't be nervous. I'm a little, Don't little be concerned. nervous. As I tell everyone, this is, you know, in my mind, black history is American history. So this is just a time for us to have fun. Our listeners get to learn a little bit more about you. Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, I might add. You know, you were part of a team that covered Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans for the New Orleans Times Picayune. You know, how did you get involved in journalism? Is this something that was always in your blood or, or did you kind of stumble upon it? You know, I think early on, like when I was just a kid, um, I knew I loved storytelling and I loved writing and I loved mm-hmm. reading poetry. And I started winning awards when I was like a kid, like in grade school, I was writing essays and winning awards. So I, I think I also liked the little hand claps, like the little applause. Like, oh, that felt good. Like, I can, y'all like this? I could do this? Um, and so early on, I knew I could write and I enjoyed doing it. And it wasn't until maybe in high school, you know, I was playing you know, sports, but I was also writing for the yearbook staff. I was like, I want to get paid to do this one day. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took me a long time to get to that point. Um, but, you know, it all kind of came together. And once I realized that I wasn't going to be Richard Wright necessarily, and I was going to be at least initially kind of a hardcore street reporter um, covering police and crime and capturing our stories, our life and our death in that kind of way, um, I think I was like just locked in at that point. Did you have an English teacher that was a mentor to you? I mean, because I feel like I always bonded with my math teachers. I never bonded with my English teachers. And so now that I write for a living, I always struggle because, you know, writing is hard for almost everyone. But I really wish I I, like bonded with an English teacher where I could like call them up and like get advice. Mm -hmm. Did you ever have one of those teachers or were you just kind of, uh, I don't know, on your own and the words just kind of came to you from wherever? You know, I didn't have... um that kind of mentor English teacher, but my English teacher was one of my football coaches and uh, coach Bueller. And I can remember doing, doing stories and essays and he'd have me like come into other classes to read my stuff. And he was always just very supportive. Again, certainly had a relationship with him because 
I saw him literally every single day after school, during school, throughout school. Um, but mm-hmm. he was an, an early supporter and believer in, in my writing. And I think that, you know, did help me because he exposed me again. He would literally pull me into other classes and be like, Tremaine, read the thing. And I would read it in right. front of the class and it would be like, it would just be dope that I was doing it because also I don't think people realized that I was about that life. Cause I was playing around with everybody and we hanging out and we kick it in. And I don't think, you know, and that's the one thing I, I'm I think back to high school, you know, now, you know, you want to stun a little bit like, Oh, I know that back then it was kind of like keeping it cool a little bit. Like if somebody asked me for some help, I do, I do a little help on the side. I like to write the poetry and some people knew, but, um, it was, it was dope to, to step outside of myself a little bit and present that side of myself to, to people. Do you have a favorite writer or poet that you still sort of, when you need a little inspiration, you just open up the book and, and kind of, breeze through it'd be i mean obviously this is you know it's the langston hughes it's amiri baraka mm-hmm. it's richard wright uh, richard wright especially i think um the the original american hunger right this idea of this burning thing mm-hmm. inside of us um and we're responding to all the stimuli in the world and the systems around us and we're responding and we're fighting and there's anger and there's violence and there's actual hunger i think that has informed the way i want to tell these stories about again black life and death in america in a certain way that there is always a response to things happening around us, but we also have agency in this and all the responses are valid. And we're still just trying to, you know, find our footing and push and push. And I think, yeah, definitely Richard Wright early on, especially. You know, I stumbled upon Richard Wright's rite of passage and I, you know, I used to live on the Upper West Side near Columbia and that book deals with Morningside Park and, you know, Mm -hmm. some young, young boys who unfortunately have an unfortunate incident in the park and you can tell the entrances and the exits where they're running in and out of the park. And I just remember reading that book. I, I stumbled upon it, buying it from a used bookstore, but just going in and out of the sections that mm-hmm. Richard Wright talks about. And I was like, this book isn't often talked about. You know, I didn't read it in school. I had yeah. never heard of it from any of my teachers or professors, but I think it's like one of the most beautifully written stories about kind of black urban youth, if you will. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's, uh, there's something so... Uh, potent, and this is kind of obvious for people who are familiar with Richard Wright's work, but there's something so potent about it that cuts right to the core of the experience, right? We talk about the two-ness and all that mm-hmm. stuff, but like hit that central, and not that it always has to be framed in the violence of it all, but there's something in the violence of it all and the projection of the violence, and not to be Franz Fanonish about it, but lashing out at you know each other because the colonizer, you can't do that, right? And so all right. that bound right. together and understand, especially black boy, it's like. I kind of feel, I understand that um, in, in a very kind of core connected kind of way. Are you ready, my dear friend, to play the blackest question? I guess I'm, I mean, you know, if, you, if you stay ready, you ain't got to get ready. So I guess I'm ready. Come in, come in, <laughs> I cocky, love that. Come in ready. <laughs> okay, let's come in hot. Question number one. This civil rights attorney was known as Mr. Civil Rights, and he became the first black U.S. Supreme Court justice. Who was he? Thurgood Marshall? Marshall. I told you, you know, we start <laughs> off smooth and then it gets a little more difficult. Okay. So for our listeners out there, Thurgood Marshall was one of the architects of the civil rights movement, a passionately progressive attorney who helped end school segregation. He attended a segregated high school in Baltimore, my favorite city, and Lincoln University, historically black uh, university near Oxford, Pennsylvania. And his first choice for law school was actually the University of Maryland School of Law, but they didn't admit black students. So he attended Howard University School of Law instead, HBCU in Washington, D.C., and he graduated first in his class in 1933. And in 1934, 
uh, he joined the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, known as the NAACP, as its first special counsel with a mission to help end educational discrimination in the United States. So over the years, Thurgood Marshall became the face of the civil rights litigation. He argued 32 cases before the Supreme Court. He won 29 of them, and he participated in hundreds of other cases in lower courts nationwide. And in the process, he traveled between 50,000 and 75,000 miles a year. I know you travel a lot, but Thurgood Marshall might have you beat. Um, so he was crisscrossing the nation to oversee as many as 450 cases at a time. So in the early 1950s, he served as the lead attorney in what turned out to be the landmark civil rights lawsuit in the era, Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka. And in May 1954, the Supreme Court ruled unanimously that the 14th Amendment, which provides all U.S. citizens equal protection under the law, prohibits segregating public schools by race because segre segregated schools are inherently unequal. And so, this, even though states drag their feet to implement the ruling, it set a national precedent and helped spark much of the civil rights movement. So that is Thurgood Marshall, our very first black Supreme Court justice. So I know that you've been traveling all over, but especially in the South, doing some really great reporting on HBCUs. Can you give us a little preview as to what you're doing and why? Yeah, so uh, we have this uh, this series, this tour called uh, Into America, The Power of the Black Vote, where we wanted to go across the country and engage uh, with some of our, our best and brightest young minds about issues that matter to them. So we've traveled from Texas Southern University, North Carolina Central University, FAMU. Uh, where else are we going? Jackson State University. Um, and I think that's I think that's the. You know, I feel like that there's that commercial where the rapper's on stage. He's like, thank you, Cincinnati. And they start booing. It's like, it's Pittsburgh. And I'm like, right. I know I'm somewhere. Um, but so so at each location, we're engaging with a different um, issue, right? So in Texas Southern University, we talked about the battle over CRT and who are the gatekeepers of the truth, right? And whose history matters. At North Carolina Central University, uh, we're talking about the issue of, of student loan debt, right? Um, at um, FAMU, a great environmental science program that nobody knows about. Like these young people may very well save us and the world at the same time in vulnerable communities with kind of innovative research into sea life and seawater and all kind of great stuff. Um, and Jack State University, uh, these young people here have, have the honor and privilege of walking in mighty big footsteps, right? And standing on giant shoulders, issues like reproductive rights, but also the infrastructure and the racialization around um, the weaponizing of access to water, right? Mm. And so um, talking to these young people, I'm in once like inspired and I'm kind of like in awe, like they're 18, mm -hmm. 19 year old and they're just about it. Like we were about it, but they have a full grasp of all the systems at play here where I think I, at 18, 19, I kind of understood, right? And through lived experience and through reading, but these kids are activating in a way that I think is just so important. So we wanted to go across the country and do just that, right? So we have this big town hall special at Texas Southern. We have this whole podcast series doing TV around it. Um, it's really an, an, an amazing endeavor, right? Just to be able to crisscross the South and engage these schools. Um, but it's a reminder that we might, might, maybe, might be okay, I think. Maybe. Well, okay, we're going to take a quick commercial break, but I'm here with Tremaine Lee playing the Blackest Questions. And you are one for one, brother. On a roll. Let's go. All right. <laughs> and we're back playing the Blackest Questions with Tremaine Lee. All right. Are you ready for question number two? I think so. I I'm going to remind you, the questions get a little harder, but don't forget, Black history is American history, and the goal is not to get everything right. It's just for us to learn together on an intellectual journey. So question number two. CNBC recently highlighted this 24-year-old Canada-based creative 
who recently sold over $300,000 in NFTs. Who is she? I have no idea. Wait, 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 wait. Let me, let me think about this. 24 years old. Canada. NFTs. I don't even know what an NFT is, but uh, I don't know. I know what an NFT is. I do not know who this person is. <laughs> okay, it's Lana Danina. And so Lana Danina is based in Montreal, Canada, and started selling NFTs of paintings she created one by one, but later began to list entire collections. So the Mona Lana collection includes 500 unique portraits of women created by Lana Danina, and each portrait was generated by code with 112 different traits. And so since February 2021, Lana Danina has earned over $300,000 from selling her art as NFTs, or non-fungible tokens, on various platforms. And unlike traditional markets for art, NFTs and Web3 allows artists to create their own galleries and set their own prices online. And so artists can also earn royalties on secondary sales of their work with NFTs. And Danina herself earns 10%. So once the Mona Lana collection passes 100 Ether in volume traded, Danina plans to give a percentage of sales to Cyberbot, a creator, a creator DAO collective that supports African artists and donates to women's shelters in Canada. So, Jermaine, I don't know much about NFTs. I definitely don't know much about the NFT art world, but I was so fascinated by this idea of young people and creativity and technology and the arts movement. I know you've been on these HBCU campuses and spent a lot of time with young people. We've also had lots of conversations about art and Black art and the importance of surrounding ourselves with Black art just because the world outside of us is just unwelcoming at times. Um, and so when you think about art, who sort of sets your heart ablaze in a great way? Like, mm. you know, when you think about Black artists... Who brings a smile to your face and sort of a glisten in your eye? Wow, glisten, a flutter. First of all, big shout out to Lana. That's dope <laughs> and beautiful. And like, that's just amazing, right? Um, you know, I, I think, you know, at Jacob Lawrence, like my one of my favorite mm -hmm. periods in, in, in history is the Great Migration and how the mass movement of us reshaped America in our politics, our cuisine, our music, and our art. And few artists to me have documented a child of the migration have documented so beautifully, like the everyday nature of life, right? The mm -hmm. heroes among us who are going to work in literally building cities or studying in the Schomburg, right? Or our historical figures, Toussaint, the Overture and right, Harry Tubman, his work just kind of grounds me in this experience, this American experience. So when I see that, I'm just like, I feel like I recognize myself in that work. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there's a, like a Gordon Parks on the flip side of art, right? As a photographer, I think a Gordon Parks captures, um, a similar kind of everyday common man, the extraordinary folks like the Pamela leaves of the world and all the archetypes, but also, um, everyday black Americans in ways that really reflect and reveal our beauty that we all know is there. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't think you need to mm -hmm. do it, um, in seeking the, the white man's approval. I don't think he ever did. Right. And mm -hmm. he chose his, we call it his weapon of choice was his camera, Gordon Parks. Um, but I think Jake Lawrence is, I try to get into a little Romare Bearden because sometimes a little, my eyes is, try, I'm trying to like understand what I'm seeing, which I kind of do. Yeah. Um, the collage can be really intense for some people. It, it, can, it can because I want to, yeah, but it's, it's a little tough. Well, you know, 
I, I love Jacob Lawrence. He's definitely one of my favorites. He and William Johnson. But what I really loved, I, I had the opportunity to see that entire migration series mm. a few years ago when it came through New York. I'm jealous. It was all, I believe it was 60 panels that they, you know, got from all the different museums and collectors. And what I thought was so fascinating, not just what you said about, you know, the mass movement of, of black bodies, especially going from the South to the North because of jobs and industry. And he's got that famous painting where it's like Chicago, St. Louis, Pittsburgh, you know, you mm. think about August Wilson and you think about mm-hmm. Detroit and, you know, all, you know, all the great black people who come out of Chicago, but also he's got some that really document this kind of fleeing domestic terrorism of the yep. South as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just about jobs in the North. It's about what's going on in the South and how people are taking these midnight trains right. to escape white supremacy and, and the violence that is in the South. I just think that, you know, that juxtaposed with a Gordon Parks, as you said, mm-hmm. you know, his Life magazine photos yeah. that are, and shout out to Andre Wagner, who I, I call like the modern day Gordon Parks, you mm-hmm. know, young cat. He did the most famous for the Queen and Slim poster, yeah. uh, but shoots for the New York Times and was the Gordon Parks fellow. But, you know, documenting us just doing the mundane, mm-hmm. just eating, eating fast food or yeah. waiting at the bus stop to go to work um, or just doing work, you know, at a, at a shop. I just think that those those pieces of art, as you said, are these foundations mm-hmm. of reminders of who we are. This radical notion of just existing and being and breathing and mm. confidence in your own skin. But also, Jacob Lawrence, and I forgot um, the, the, the title of this series, but it was like American history generally, right? So you had Washington over to mm-hmm. Delaware, you had different aspects of it. And sometimes having a black reflection of just history period and including us in it. Because we know we've been marginalized and sidelined and almost erased, and they're still doing it today, erasing our existence and our contributions to this place. Um, but for him to also tell our story, but tell the American story, which is full, right? It's us, it's them. I, the way I think our history is often described, what's black history? Like we're here by ourselves, like in a silo, mm-hmm. just doing black people stuff, as opposed to we are bouncing off and moving around and conflating with and intertwined with white folks and Native American people and all the people of this country who were ground up for the benefit of some. Right. Um, equally as important. Well, that's what I always say. Like this podcast, it's like, this isn't just for black people to learn about, you know, black people past and present. It's for everyone. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, I always say it's like white people should be enraged that they didn't learn about this stuff in school. They should be angry. You know, a lot of us learned about it at home. Mm-hmm. You know, granted, our parents couldn't cover everything that wasn't covered in school. But I feel like, you know, non-black people should feel like their education right. system has failed them by not knowing these things. Time for a quick break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Blackest Questions. Now, mm-hmm. you, you said something about, you know, this contribution and to to making sure that our history isn't erased. How is it that you got uh, tied into the 1619 Project? Because your mm-hmm. contribution uh, is a beautiful reflection. Um, so how did that come to be? Thank you very much. Um, I appreciate that. The, the, the home in Nicole Hannah-Jones, the, the, the brilliant, you know, queen mother of the project. Um, you yeah. know, we've been friends I for mean, a long time. Just, she's, 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 she's a force. She's, she truly is a force. She's a real one, as they say. Oh, but, and she's been a real one before, before mm-hmm. she became Nicole Hannah-Jones, mm-hmm. 1619. Um, and so we've been friends for a long time and she came to me, uh, we were actually having a conversation, um, uh, about 1619 approaching and she's like, well, I actually got this thing we're doing. I would love for you to be a part of it. And I had an idea of something I wanted to do. Um, and I had other stuff and I was like, I don't know, Nicole. And she's like, I'm, you, you're going to want to do this. And I, and this is right. before she knew what it would become. Mm-hmm. And Nicole's kind of person, when she said something, like the way she said, I was like, she's basically telling me 
that I have to do it. <laughs> so like right. somebody says, you, you've been voluntold. I didn't volunteer. I, didn't, I was voluntold. <laughs> and so, but the way she said it for us, she was like, trust me, you're going to want to do this. And, and it's important. I want to have your voice in this. And it's important. She was, um, you know, gathering a collection of writers who, who she saw in a certain vein and wanted mm-hmm. not mushy mouth, mealy mouth, politicized, none of that. She's like, I want real black writers to write these real black stories about the founding of America and how, you know, all the ways that we've been intertwined with this. And so she told me to do it. And I said, yes, ma'am, I'll, I will do it. Um, and it was honestly one of the more rewarding things in my career. And I, and I feel like I've done mm-hmm. a lot. I've always tried to shape my career in a way that is of like, I'm trying to like leave something when aliens come back, they understand how we yeah. live in America. Yeah. Right. And the tapestry in a very, I've tried to do it in a way. It's like, say not Jake Lawrence, Jake Lawrence, but like every day through crime and violence yeah. and politics and education and aspiration, all those things. Um, but to, to, you know, be tapped by Nicole, um, you know, to, to write a chapter in, in this book, knowing that this was going to have a transformative, not knowing fully, but at some point realizing what we were doing here, we have this trans- transformational kind of thing happening in America and have everyone from the president and the Congress either hating it or applauding it mm-hmm. um, and forcing people to grapple with um, this America that we've been told that never really existed, the mm-hmm. mythology surrounding what we believe this place to be. Um, it was just a, it's just an honor and a gift. And it's just, right. it's amazing that how the legs that the book has had, like it's still moving. It's- it still has, it still has legs. And I just, you know, before we go to break, I just, what I love about your writing is it always feels like it's in service to black people. Thank you. Like you were writing not to win awards of which you have many um, people can Google you, but you're writing because you love black people. And you were writing to make sure that our stories are told. And so that's, I think that's what comes off of the page, not just from the 1619 project, but for so many of your other projects that I've read uh, that you've been acknowledged for, but it's just, it seems to be of service to black people, which I think is the, the, the through line to all of your projects. Well, so when, I, when, when, when I, when I hear that though, um, you know, that my work is in service and that's, that's, that's everything to me. And what's interesting is when people come up to me and it's, it's Never white people. Every I've had like two white people come up to me and say, "Hey, train, you know, whatever." They've written to me an email, whatever. But when black people come up to me and say, "Hey, man, thank you," or "Keep up the good work," or whatever it is, mm-hmm. um, that is every. Especially when it's like, look like my grandmother, look like my aunt, mm-hmm. my uncle, and it's like it's like my people um, that yes. see me and appreciate that. That is the entire reward. And then when they like the pride, feeling our people with pride that they can look at me and say, "Yeah, he's that's that's us." That is absolutely. There's nothing everything. better than that. Nothing, not an award. Because, yes, thank you. Yeah, I want those two, and I like the check, and I like, I like the <laughs> yes, please. But honestly, when I started the Philadelphia Tribune, the Black Press, it was in service of us and telling mm-hmm. our stories, and and that love from the church folks when you go to do the story and love from the neighborhood, and they know you're going to do it the right way, that you're not going to do any funny business, or you're not going to try to be telling a story through others' eyes. Right? It's mm-hmm. it's us, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Because some of these stories are ugly. Um, right. But that it matters that I'm doing it. And they, I mean, so, yes, thank you very much. Wow. Okay. Let's take a quick break. I'm here with Tremaine Lee on The Blackest Questions. All right. We are back. I'm here with Tremaine Lee on The Blackest Questions. We're doing all right. You're, you know, one out of two. You ready for question number three? I am. I, I think, I feel like two was like a, a little bit of a tricky one as Canadian, but uh, well, I'm here. I'm ready. I'm here. <laughs> Okay, question number three. 
Known as the superhero of filmmaking and considered a true pioneer of the film industry, he was the most successful African-American director of the first half of the 20th century. Who was he? Michaud. Yes. Yes. Oscar Michaud. Oscar Michaud. So between 1919 and 1948, he wrote, produced, directed, and distributed more than 45 films for African-American audiences who watched these race, which means all black films, in the 700 theaters that were part of the ghetto circuit, as it was called. So it's been 90 years since he became the first black filmmaker to produce a sound feature film with The Exile. And it's been 70 years since his death. And still Michaud's impact hasn't been fully measured or recognized by Hollywood in a lot of ways. So he's the child of formerly enslaved people. And as America's preeminent black filmmaker for almost three decades, Michaud started the Michaud Film Corporation and made it over 40 films, often as a writer, director, and producer. And like Alfred Hitchcock, he often cameoed in his own work. And so he financed those movies any way he could, including incredibly selling stock in his company to white farmers in South Dakota. And in 1986, the Directors Guild of America honored Michaud with a Lifetime Achievement Award. And in 2010, the U.S. Postal Service issued a Michaud commemorative stamp. In 2019, Michaud's masterpiece, Body and Soul, was selected by the Library of Congress for preservation in the National Film Registry for being culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. Are you familiar? Have you seen any of Oscar Michaud's films? Or do you just know about his work through some of your research and writing elsewhere? Yeah, I'm... Uh... Not super duper familiar with the films. I've, I've seen pieces of the films. I've, I don't think I've ever seen a full like Oscar Michaud film. But the one thing I've always loved about, um, you know, what I have seen of Oscar Michaud's work is similar to like if you ever feel, see an old photo album from like the 1930s or the 20s and maybe some middle class family in Minnesota or somebody in Harlem. It captures a different side of black life back then. Like it wasn't all just sharecropping and right. It just mm-hmm. wasn't. It just wasn't that. And so in those period films, those race films where it's like. They're at the orchestra's playing, and the black folks are dancing, and there's some sort of romance thing, and then something happens, they got to flee, and in the car. It just gives a different, uh, probably a truer version. Obviously, it was still, the industry was still the industry, right? And he was still trying to forge a way where there was no way. Um, so I'm sure he had to acquiesce to some forces about how he present black folks. Um, but I love that it shows a, a fuller picture of black life in America during a pretty specific kind of time, right? The 30s, mm-hmm. the 40s. Yeah, we're full people, right? Mm-hmm. It's not all doom and gloom and sadness and downtrodden long faces. It's like we've actually always had joy and mm-hmm. laughter and dancing and family and mm-hmm. relationships and drama and shenanigans. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the the beauty of these films. Do you have a favorite black director? Oh, it's Spike, modern day? Spike Lee. Spike, Spike Lee is really? my, yeah, Spike Lee is really absolutely my favorite. I mean, I watch, when I watch Do the Right Thing, and I must have been, I don't know, 13, 12, 13, 14, whatever, however, whatever age I was, um, it just spoke to me because it hit all the things in my brain. It was like the Jordans and public enemy and fighting the system and the, the, the cultural, the, the visual language that he used. What I tell you about that noise? What I tell you about them those long, beautiful scenes where the guys were out on the block and the, the, the interaction between him and the son and, and Sal, we all know a Sal. When you're young, you work for some Sal's who like, you kind of got a good relationship with them, but you know they're kind of racist. Like growing up in South Jersey with regular working class white people, not white people with money, they're friends of yours. You know their dad's racist. Like, you know the mm-hmm. mom's racist, but they're, we're all in the same community. We're friends and you, you're, you're doing that kind of dance around those dynamics. Um, and so do the right thing. And then Malcolm X, personal hero of my Malcolm X 
um, the, the epic work that, that that was. Um, I think that he did it when no one believed in him and he did it in a time. Think about coming out of the eighties into the nineties, where it was like, you can't be mad and angry black man, you, all these things, right? Black folks got access yeah. to industry and some money. So now you have to kind of assimilate as much as possible. And he's like confronting that head on. Yeah. I mean, I got to say my favorite <clears throat> Spike film is School Days. Yeah. Like I'm a, I'm a sucker for musicals and I'm a big Rodgers and Hammerstein fan. Well, you're To see, you know, first of all, Tisha Campbell and shut yeah. up, you know, um, Samuel Jackson, <laughs> was, Lawrence Fishburne. Was... I mean, like, you know, just Giancarlo Esposito. I mean, the cast alone say nothing of Ruby D and Ozzy Davis, like the the whole cast. But the fact that you have a, a musical at an HBCU, right, right. like, you know, and the whole fraternity. Colorism. Scene, you know, my mom's name and my dad's a Q. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And hair. I mean, all the things that I think as a young black girl, we talked about in my family, you know, my mom's more brown skin than my sister and myself, you know, this idea of like, what is good hair, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that rejecting that, that construct, but also, you know, my dad's a Q, like so many of my, my cousins are my Q cousins. Um, so just seeing this frat scene, uh, you know, obviously I wasn't around when my dad was pledging or pledging other people, but this idea of like fraternity and brotherhood and why people would want that even mm-hmm. was just, uh, it's still, yeah. That that one, School Days is light years ahead of all the other Spike films for me. And, and you know, obviously Do the Right Thing, Malcolm X are way up there. I think about Samuel Jackson, you think about the, the scene where they're at the restaurant, and it's like, what it means to be middle class and black, or educated and black, juxtapos- juxtaposing, mm-hmm. like, what it means to be real, regular black folks, right? And that dynamic. I think he exposed mm-hmm. a lot of things there. Mm-hmm. That's a conversation for us. And that's another one that, that we will understand those dynamics, because we're all bouncing around somewhere in between those forms of blackness. School Days is almost 30 years old. I Gotta be more. Is it more? I need to look at my... I mean, listen, we're getting old. <laughs> we're trying to rush. Some, some of us are getting old. Some of us are getting better. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, that's right. I just had a, I just had a right. birthday. That's right. Like, <laughs> listen. Like a fine wine. That's listen. right. Virgo season's over, sir. Never, that's all year <laughs> round. <laughs> what you, that's right. That's right. No, it's only going to get better. I mean, that's that's the beauty of, you know, sort of acknowledging we get to be this age. You know, we get to have graying hair. Um, it's it's a blessing. This idea of aging while black. I've been having this, this, this thought and this conversation. What it means to be an okay. old black man in America. I cannot wait. Mm. Let me get all the grades. Let me be a 90-year-old yeah. cantankerous, y'all better stop playing with me, black man, because black men don't make it this far. Right? We don't. Mm-hmm. We often don't. Our life expectancy is years and years below white men, certainly, and black women, of course, um, and the attacks on all fronts. And so I take, you know, I rejoice in getting older and the more gray is starting to get the whole thing down here starting to get gray. But it's like, <laughs> guess what? I earned them. And thank you. It's yeah. it, what's, every every gray. What's the opposite? Every gray tells a story. And what's the opposite of getting older? Right. Like, not, right. Man, we try to be here. Right. So now we can go to a break. We are here. <laughs> That's right. Well, right. We're going to take a quick break. I'm here with Tremaine Lee. Okay, and we're back. We're playing the Blackest Questions, and we are going to zoom through. Question number four. Are you ready, Mr. Lee? I think so. Okay. A block in Harlem, New York, where a groundbreaking tennis star grew up will now bear her name. Who was she? I want to say Althea Gibson. You are correct. 
Killing the game there today. We go. So, Althea Gibson was born to sharecroppers in Clarendon County, South Carolina in 1927. When the cotton market collapsed in the latter part of the decade, Gibson and her family relocated to Harlem, and that's where she first picked up a tennis racket. In 1956, she would become the first African-American to win a Grand Slam event taking place in the French Championship. The following year, she became the first African-American to win England's famed Wimbledon tournament. And by the time she retired from amateur tennis in 1959, Gibson had claimed 11 Grand Slam titles and was the first black woman to be ranked number one player in the world. And so I always think about Althea Gibson because obviously... There's so much conversation about Serena as the GOAT, as she is, and her recent retirement, or as she says, evolving from tennis as a sport. Uh, And I know that, you know, we've talked, you're a big Serena fan, but I always want to remember Althea Gibson because without Althea, there is no Venus and Serena, and there's definitely no Coco uh, or Naomi Osaka and all the new generations of amazing black uh, tennis players that we see today. Do you follow tennis at all? I mean, you mentioned that you played football in in high school, uh, do you ever pick up a racket? I never picked up a racket. Um, and it's, it's interesting you bring up Serena. That's the reason I watch tennis now. And it's I just started watching the men. Just mm-hmm. I just started, but So I'm like locked into women's tennis and Williams sisters, tennis in particular. Um, but I, lo- I love, you know, the framing here of like, they're, they, you know, Althea swung so Serena could <laughs> dominate, right? Because think about how, <laughs> yeah. how tough it was for Serena and Venus to, to, to move through that very white, wealthy world where there were still some black folks at the country club. A few. Out there, Gibson, wasn't nobody at the country club. So wasn't low. nobody there. Wasn't nobody there to support you. Mm-hmm. They, and most of them really honestly didn't want you there. Like, really, truly didn't want you there. And you're challenging policy and laws just to be able to to, to engage in a sport that you love. Um, and so, while I've never played tennis, I, I've, I've hit a ball a few times and something, my, my, my mechanics ain't right. I need a little more time. I'm sure I'd be good at it if I had some time. Right. Um but yeah, I'm all they they brought me in to, to tennis. That's the only reason I watch tennis is because the Williams sisters. So I've I've played tennis for a very long time. I'm not good. I always tell people I play ugly tennis. So in my head, I always tell people, in my head, I look like Althea. Yeah. <laughs> On the court, I don't. Right. And so it's interesting because growing up, um, I always knew about Althea Gibson. I don't know if I had a book, I don't know if my parents told me about her. Um, so when the Williams sisters came on the scene, you know, for me, it was just like, oh, they're an extension of this woman that I had heard about, uh, who's this amazing tennis player. And obviously Arthur Ashe was another person that I'd heard about as a young kid. But whenever I pick up a racket, I always feel like the spirit of Althea Gibson is with me. But unfortunately, (laughs) the spirit doesn't help me get the ball across the net. (laughs) It just helps me have the confidence to keep going back to the court. I think there was, with Althea Gibson and, and those people that we learned about when we were young, there was this kind of dignity and pride. And they were so classy, representing like, a, you're a credit to your race kind of thing. And then when, like, Serena and Venus, it was, like, bold. Like, we got our, 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 our beads, and we come in, and we're not, we don't even want to be part of this. We're from mm-hmm. Compton, we have to dominate. And that strength and power right. was a, a juxtaposition. Um, but again, it, they're not even bookends, but they're different um, way stations in the journey of blackness, right? Like we're classy and we're upright and we're also like, mm-hmm. we're not here to play. And I love that kind of trajectory from Althea to the Williams sisters. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, before we go to break, I think this is the, the through line of our conversation today. It's like, there's so many different ways to be black and to celebrate blackness. Um, and that's the beauty of who we are in this country and how we've created our identity out of 
you know, whatever was given and what we decided to take. Mm -hmm. We've created some of the most beautiful, diverse, dynamic ways of representing ourselves. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break. I'm with Tremaine Lee. You're listening to The Blackest Question. And we're back. I'm here with my dear friend, Tremaine Lee, and we're about to hit up question number five. Are you ready? I'm ready. The emergence of this all-female military regiment was the result of their male population facing high casualties in the increasingly frequent violence and warfare with neighboring West African states. Who were they? I know, I know this too. Uh, the homie, what was, what was there? It was there? Um, it was the homie, but I don't remember what their, the, the, the sisters were called. The, the fight, the, the. I think uh, we're going to give you the point. It's the, the okay. homie warriors. There we go. So you are correct. We have the Dahomey <laughs> Warriors, one of the few documented female armies in modern history. Dahomey was an all-female military regiment of the Kingdom of Dahomey, which existed from the 1600s until 1904. And soldiers were recruited from free Dahomeyan women, but there were hundreds of soldiers who were also from, for from foreign captives. And during their membership, they were not allowed to have children or be married. Uh, and the largest ethnic groups were found primarily in Benin, uh, in the southern region, but they were also found in southwest Nigeria and Togo. And the total population is estimated to be about 3.5 million people when it was all said and done. And European colonizers considered the historical capital city of Dahomey as a major commercial center for the slave trade and part of the area they called the Slave Coast. Recently, there was a, a film uh, that just came out called The Woman King, starring Viola Davis as the general of the Dahomey Warriors. It's been under quite a bit of a spotlight. Some people love it and some people are saying that we should boycott it. Have you seen the film just yet, Jermaine? I have not seen it. I've heard about the controversy. I understand the controversy. I've heard great things about Viola Davis' performance in the movie generally. And so I don't know how they address the elephant in the room. Um, but it seems like it's a great opportunity to have a discussion about, um, you know, the, the, the you know Africans taking part in the slave trade. And what mm -hmm. role is we know that the homie where there's there that one quote by the king who was like, you know, our women sing lullabies about conquering our enemies and making them slaves. And I think it's a, it's a good reminder that, you know, Europe created these boundaries, right? And made Congo the Congo and made Nigeria, Nigeria. They weren't that before. They were different peoples in different regions of, of this country. I mean, this continent who, who were at odds, right? And white folks did fuel that by introducing the gun, right? The gun for slave cycle and all that stuff. So it's, it's very complicated history. And I don't know how much they engage with all of that in the film, but it sounds like it's a great opportunity to, to build a conversation around it. Yeah, I agree. You know, I, I have yet to see it. I always like to support black films. I try and go and see them on opening weekend just so they can get those numbers. But, you know, the schedule's been the schedule. But I definitely do want to support just because, you know, if, if you don't have the ticket sales, then they feel these stories don't need to be told. But just as you said, it's like it is a complex and complicated history that at least, if nothing else, will start a conversation about Maybe someone will want to pick up a book to see what the reality was, because obviously we know that this is a fictional portrayal. But like, yes, it wasn't just everybody, you know, on the continent of Africa being best friends and braiding hair and, you know, sisterhood. It's like, no, <laughs> folks are bellicose. Mm -hmm. Like, that's just that's what it is. That's the nature of human beings, sadly. And so it's it's a complicated history that, you know, was complicated before the Europeans got there and definitely a lot more difficult and complicated once they left. Okay, so we're going to take a quick commercial break, and then we're going to come back and play Black Lightning. So 
So we are back with my dear friend, Tremaine Lee. And so Tremaine, before we let you get out of here, we've got time for the Black Bonus Round. And this is a round where whatever comes to mind is the right answer. Okay? So Uh-oh. this is just a way for our audience to Sounds dangerous. a little bit better. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you ready? These are just hot takes. Okay. Favorite city, Philly or New York? Philly. Swimming or fishing? Swimming where? I think it depends. I love fishing. But if we if we in Turks and Caicos and that water is turquoise, I need to be swimming in that. But it's hard. I don't know. It depends <laughs> where. I love fishing though. Okay. Favorite fish to catch? Oh, largemouth. Well, smallmouth bass has a lot of fight in them. They're small but mighty. But largemouth, they're predator fish. And so you, you have to angle to get them. They're, they're not dumb either, so you got to get them. So I would say largemouth. Okay. Hot take. Best stand-up comedian, Mike Epps or Cat Williams? I would have to say Mike Epps, Cat Williams. Um, there's a genius to Cat Williams. There's something really special about Cat Williams. Um, but I, I, I would have to go with Mike Epps, every man kind of thing. Yeah, I like, I like Mike Epps. Oh, that's hard, actually. That's hard. Because Cat Williams is, I think he, he is a genius. Um, okay. Alarm know. clocks or natural rise? A natural rise is always good. Okay. Air Jordans or Yeezys? Jordans. I don't even understand Yeezys. I don't, I don't understand them. Yeah, I mean, they look like space shuttle shoes. But I don't understand them. Uh, 90s hip hop or 90s R&B soul? It's not even a fair question. I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, am, I, am I on an island that I can only listen to one? Or yes. I, I'm on an island that I can only listen to one? I would, I would probably have to say... <sighs> I'm, I'm going to say 90s R&B because I think... I, 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 I don't know if I could say... I don't know. 90s R&B. Okay. If you had to choose Alan Iverson or Isaiah Hip-hop. Thomas. 90s Hip Hop. You're changing? Okay, 90s Hip Hop. Rewind. If you had to choose Alan Iverson or Isaiah Thomas. Iverson, all day to answer. Okay. And do you prefer dining in or taking out? Um, Dining in or taking out? I would probably... I guess it depends. I mean, I, I like a good dining out situation. I like a... Yeah, it's almost like calling out of work, calling into work, so I think I'm using these things differently. I'd like sitting in a restaurant at times, but... There's nothing like kicking back at the crib, get some food, watch a movie, play some music, you know, have a little taste, a little something. I'm on an adult beverage if you're of age. One or two if little Only if you're of age. Only. Right. Children. Only. Right. This is a responsible podcast, Tremaine. <laughs> Listen, I want to thank you so much for joining us on The Blackest Questions. I hope you learned a little something today. I know our listeners loved hearing about uh, your thoughts on art and writing and literature and promise that you'll come back and uh Give us a little bit more about what you're up to. Dr. Greer, this has been an amazing, wonderful, fun experience. I was a little nervous at first because I didn't want to disappoint my people, but I feel like we we, we gave something to the people and I got something myself. So thank of you course. so much for having me. You are always of service to the people. Let's take a quick commercial break and we'll be back in a moment. And we're back. Thank you so much for listening to The Blackest Questions. The show is produced by Akilah Shedrick, Jesse Vargas, and Sasha Armstrong. If you like what you heard, please download the Grio app to listen and watch many more great shows and share it with everyone you know.